Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. As you have guessed by now, Kay and I have a soft spot for politics and political discussions. And <laughs> let's be honest, politics influence all aspects of our life from labor and tax laws to food safety and yes, privacy and data protection as well. The legislative discussion on privacy laws in the U.S. is still ongoing, with several laws still pending in the current legislative season, although some have failed as well. But today we take a look at Kay's home state of Arizona, which has not figured that prominently yet on the state privacy bill lists. Our guest today is Domingo de Gracia, a Democratic legislator in the Arizona House of Representatives. He's not only a lawyer and a legislator, but also a licensed pilot for airplanes and helicopters. But most important to us, he has drafted a privacy bill, introducing a section on data and security standards in the Arizona statutes. The bill was proposed on February 11th, and you will hear all about it in today's episode. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So we are absolutely thrilled to have you on, and I know our listeners say I'm absolutely thrilled to have everyone on. I am. I'm absolutely thrilled to be doing a podcast on privacy. Let's just be honest. So, all right. I found the unexpected question. This one shouldn't be a hard one. If you could acquire a talent without any extra effort, what would it be? Oh, that's an easy one for me. So the, the talent that I would acquire is being able to play true old school flamenco guitar because I'm working through it right now. It's been a, a pursuit that I've had for playing guitar for a few decades now, but I'm now focusing on flamenco. If I could just fast forward to the end part, that would be ecstatic. <laughs> <laughs> and one of my law professors, so if you're following flamenco then, so one of my law school professors you may know, Charles Cairos. Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. I think he was a competitive flamenco dancer. Nice. Good. Well, I'll have to, yeah, I'll have to make that introduction soon. All right, Paul, what would you do? I want to hear some flamenco music now. I'm in two minds. Either... Of course you are. I would like to speak Chinese overnight. Oh, is that a talent? Well, okay, then speak any language that I, okay, would, hold on. that I would want to, which could be very helpful. Or just sing properly, like never off key. Yeah, I think singing is probably my big one, because right now my granddaughter loves to hear me sing, but she's only two months old. When they start walking and talking really well and, and getting sophisticated, you know, like four or five, then they're like, Mimi, don't sing. <laughs> so that would probably That's be mean. mine. Oh, I know, right? That would be mine, would be able to sing. I can't sing for anything. So we were talking earlier about how we absolutely love talking about the pending privacy bills and what's coming in the U.S., taking bets on it. We have miserably failed every bet we have this year. It's kind of like the difference between basketball scores and hockey scores. 
So one of the things we talked about, of course, was the fact that Arizona was one of the ones that we were following. And that just made me consider that I never actually asked you about the privacy bill here in Arizona. So tell me about it. How did it start? What's your interest? Where'd it come from? Well, a big passion. Yeah, yeah. So as an attorney, I've always been kind of geared toward consumer protections. Even in college, I did a lot of safety and just performance measures to to keep workers safe, that kind of thing. So coming through law school and being driven by consumer protections, data privacy is one of the kind of the blending of a lot of my a lot of my interest as far as technology goes, because I came up through aerospace and aviation and I still tinker with okay. the microelectronics like Arduinos and I do some really light coatings, things of that nature. And my wife is a um, forensic analyst. She does uh, brief investigations over at Kroll. Wow. Ah, got it. Yeah. So it's been kind of in the family. And when I was Looking to get into politics, data protection, data privacy is one of the kind of the defining points from from my career and my interest. So I started working up a, a data privacy bill. And actually, I introduced the first one that we're talking about now, the first version in 2019. Okay. I first got elected 2018. I dropped the first bill 2019. And it, it, politics are interesting. You kind of have to separate out data privacy laws into two buckets. There's the the context or the text of the, the bill itself. And then there's the environment, the, the corporate culture of the legislature, whether it's U.S. Congress or the Arizona House and Senate, whatever it is. And they take on completely different lives. The bills do based on on who you know and what their familiarity is. And it's unfortunate that there's a lot of education that I'm doing with my colleagues in the legislature because they just don't understand what data privacy is or that exists or that there's a need for it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I absolutely agree. We fight often enough that, you know, people working in privacy don't understand privacy. And one of the frequent concerns about lawmakers, as well as the judicial branch, is that they don't understand technology, much less the privacy that would go along with the technology. And so you're right, it is a an art as much as it is a science. It is. It is. Yeah. And I'm, I'm lucky that I'm a CIPPUS and that I've worked with small and medium companies to kind of apprise them of, of data privacy, some of their exposure risks, and some some trends, especially following GDPR over the last 10 years of what might be coming to the U.S., but really no one else in the legislature speaks that language in a in a way that's um, going to be useful in getting a bill across the finish line. And, and there are a lot of companies, a lot of bigger companies that don't want anything to do with data privacy, so it's easy for them to oppose it and kill a piece of legislation before it really starts moving. It really is. So before we dive into substance of the legislation for the non-U.S. listeners, can you explain a bit about the process? Because you mentioned you presented a first draft some time ago in 2019. Now there is another draft that is tabled and that is being discussed. How does it, how does it work? How do you get to the finish line? Yeah, so the the current version, the current bill that's drafted is dead uh, for 2021. It is not coming back in any zombie form, no matter what. So the the process in Arizona is that a a legislator comes up with an idea and they they fix an idea in a tangible medium, either by writing it themselves, like I did. I, I pretty much drafted this this proposed data privacy legislation, or they have policy staff draft it for them, and then they they submit the bill. They call it dropping it. They put it into the hopper to get filed. And at that point, it becomes public. So the public can see it. It has a number. It can be referenced. And then it goes through a series of writhings and undulations. It has to be, a bill has to be assigned 
in order for it to get a hearing. And that's usually in the House. It's the Speaker of the House. Uh, the Senate is the president of the Senate that assigns a bill. If a bill never gets assigned, it's dead. It won't go anywhere. And when it does get assigned, the bill has to be read a few times in public, and then it'll go to a committee and it has to pass out of that committee. You know, And upon a committee hearing, that's where you have experts come in, they testify, folks give their opinion, the legislators get to vote on it. If it passes out of committee, it goes through the chamber, either the House or the Senate. And then if it goes to the the entire body, if it gets approval to go to the entire body for a vote and somehow passes that vote, then it'll go to the other chamber. Either if it originated in the House, it'll go to the Senate and go through the entire same process again. And then if it passes both of those, then it goes to the governor. And if the governor decides to sign it, it becomes law. And if he doesn't, it just dies or he might veto it. So it's an incredibly long process. And it's a process that requires a lot of friendships and a lot of handshakes and talking about things and making folks comfortable. And it it really requires just a startling amount of effort to get a bill through, especially on one like data privacy, where most folks just don't know that there's a need for it. Yeah. And all of that has to be done within that couple of months that a session takes. Yeah, gender. So, can you carry it over from session to session? No. So, the Arizona legislature Not operates. In Arizona. Yeah, we operate from January through usually May. We're on a, a hold now. We'll go back sometime in a few weeks. But yeah, usually you have about four weeks, which is it's it's good and bad because legislators don't have a lot of time to become familiar with proposed laws, which is a disservice to the citizens because there are some bills that I promise you legislators will have visibility on for somewhere around between two and a half and 10 minutes before they pass. It's like the worst way to pass legislation. You know, the, the U.S. Senate is touts itself as being the most deliberative body on the planet. Uh, we are probably close to the least deliberative body, which, you know, when you loop it back around to this data privacy bill that I dropped... It, it's my bill is 11 pages and getting folks comfortable with not only definitions, but the rights that are there involved and, and how it works with the attorney general's office. It's a pretty short amount of time. So this is my third year dropping the bill. It's dead now. I'll drop it again next year and we'll see how far it goes. So your next chance will only be early next year. There is nothing happening in the fall. Sorry, I'm just surprised that yeah, it, it's such a short session. I'm I'm used to parliamentary sessions uh, never ending or at least only ending at the next election so once every four years yeah but you europeans really love to you know yeah yeah but that's good you know deliberation you get more more opinions more discussion and you modify bills in a way that you get a better law in the end now what i'll be doing over the summer is holding stakeholder meetings and i hope that Kay gets to be part of that and come in and give her give her opinions because the the bills when you identify these kind of nuances to the bill that could either help or harm, and you work them out to the agreement of all parties, you wind up with a stronger product. And that's what I'll be doing oh, between June and December and dropping the bill mm -hmm. again and seeing how far we can get it. Wow. Yeah. And that's one of the things, Paul, as he was talking earlier about how getting assigned, if it doesn't get assigned, it's dead. But if it gets assigned to too many, it's also dead. Yeah. Because you can't get it through all the committees and very rarely are they concurrent. They're, they are sequential. So you have to make it all the way through one committee and then all the way through another. And so usually if it's three committees or more, you're, you're facing a big challenge. Yeah, especially on the education side, getting all the lawmakers on those committees spun yeah. up on what data privacy means and getting them comfortable with it. It's just it's a tough job. So that's part of my summer work. We'll be talking to my colleagues. 
It is. I remember, was it last year, Paul, that there was a bill that was going through Arizona, and I believe it was on automobile manufacturers and giving us to information. Was it earlier? See, these things start running through on me. No, that was last and year. And I oppose that stronger yeah. than anything I think I've ever opposed in my life. And yeah, no, Arizona still passed it. Yeah. And as far as I know, it's unconstitutional. Well, um, well, until it's challenged is out and nobody challenges it and the courts don't weigh in, then it just does whatever it does. Yeah, it does what it does. Yeah. The, uh, the interesting thing, as a person myself that comes from technology and law, that didn't come through any of my underlying committees, so I didn't have eyes on it. And at the pace that it comes by... Oh, it came quick, yeah. and there were very few eyes on it. Um, so yeah, no, I'm with you. Right. That, that's how some of sometimes, Paul, Paul, sometimes there isn't discussion and eyes, and there's so many bills coming through that they simply don't have the ability. I mean, that happens here too. We also see legislation passed that nobody paid attention to, where suddenly somebody screams... How did this happen? It, ha- it, it, it does happen, even, even in our parliamentary process. But it, it feels so rushed to only have a couple of months to discuss a private member's bill or even any legislation. If we fast-track legislation, it still takes three or four months. But that is the exception rather than the rule. We've had a lot of exceptions over the past year with all the COVID bills here in the Netherlands and, and, and across Europe as well. But Typically, legislation easily takes a year and a half, and European legislation, as you've probably guessed by now, can easily take three to ten years. Yeah. Yeah, and some states are on a two-year cycle, but Arizona is a single year, and I think most states are single-year legislators. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing about Arizona that you would think would give it give Arizona kind of a leg up on getting data privacy is that in our Constitution, we're one of just a few states that actually have privacy Eleven. written into the Constitution. I think that was from the inception, not like California that added privacy in the 1970s, but Arizona's had privacy from from day one. But still, it doesn't... We put it in the Constitution when we passed for statehood. It's been there since the very beginning. There was an interesting Supreme Court case that just came out uh, not too long ago, and it had to do with the privacy and believing that here in Arizona, given that we had privacy in our Constitution, which means that we deliberately focus on privacy, it was surprising to see this Supreme Court case come out the other side. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Was was it a... I'll find the case for you. Yeah, because you have all the the intersections of like criminal law where you have like Fourth Amendment privacy and then government where you're looking at like the USA Patriot Act and then and then private sector and all these intersections of those rights and interests becomes really, really fascinating and, and difficult to untangle sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk substance. What what are the key issues that you aim to legislate in your privacy bill? So probably uh, two big aspects of it. First is definitions, just bringing in definitions from around the world and throughout the U.S. about what data privacy means, who the actors are, whether it's defining personal information or defining data brokers or defining the sale of, of personal information. That's one of the key elements. And the second part, kind of the, the bulk of the bill, really revolves around notice and consent. Give someone notice that you're collecting their information and make it so that the the business has to get consent before they collect or share or sell that information. And and within that, you get uh, like the right to delete, the right to have a copy of it, the right to correct information or the right to opt out of processing, those type of things, kind of the, the standard forms that you would expect in a data privacy bill. But really, um, the, the guiding star is notice and consent. 
which is good. It is, yeah. And how do you think how do you think about it aligning with any of the other privacy laws that are passing? I mean, we're right here next to California. Yeah, we are. So what I did in in building it, I started out looking at kind of going back old school, like FIPS, you know, the fair information practices okay. and principles, um, building off those ideas because they've been around for a while. So they've been really vetted and we know how they work. So building off those, tying into GDPR because GDPR is in, in a lot of forms is coming to other countries or to the US and having a big influence. So taking that, I looked at both the Washington State Privacy Act that was coming through at the time and uh, California's CCPA, the, the first one that came through. And I was looking at what would work for Arizona, the, the provisions that were good, the provisions that weren't very good. You know, CCPA has an interesting history that wasn't really probably drafted in the best way that they could have because it came through pretty quick. So I, I was trying to pick and choose things that would work for Arizona, work for with the Washington State Act, and then with other states and kind of make a, a mesh, say, I guess a mesh network that could blend easily enough that if the, the federal government, the U.S. Congress needed to, they could pick it up and write a an overlying bill that would not cause too much consternation by businesses. And that would give just the regular constituent citizens some good idea of what's coming down the road. So that was the idea to have it kind of mesh and interlock. And I, I think we did a pretty good job of getting close to that. I agree. So what is the, the scope of application of your bill? One of my big frustrations with CCPA being European is that it wouldn't apply to me. If I'm visiting California, it wouldn't apply to me. I would have no rights. If I'm doing business with a company in California based here in Europe, I would have no rights. Would that be the same under your law? Well, jurisdiction is a really, really interesting question, and and you get to the heart of a lot of a lot of discussion. So in Arizona, the the scope of the application first is that it does not create a private right of action in in the bill's current form. So it would have to be enforced by the attorney general. So when you look at the the ability of the Arizona attorney general to enforce these kind of actions, it would have to be either on folks that are incorporated in Arizona, businesses in Arizona or Arizona citizens. That's about the boundaries of what I can do within this bill. And there are some limits as far as the size of the organization, like they have to make $250 million or more annual worldwide revenue, have 100,000 information on 100,000 consumers, or be a data broker You know that has uh, 35% of their information or revenues pulled from selling information plus a few others. So there, there's some confines on it. And it was that was done purposely to apply to the bigger corporations that are already playing by GDPR and CCPA so that we could roll it out a little bit faster. And the smaller businesses, the the SMEs in Arizona, don't really know privacy. So they don't have privacy principles baked into their, their foundations. So going retroactive and applying new data privacy standards on them is it, it's going to be a little bit onerous. And mm-hmm. given the the complexion of this legislature that doesn't really want a data privacy law anyway, you have to start pretty high and, and tie it to the bigger companies that are already in the sphere. And is that also why you didn't include a private right of action? Yes. Yeah. In my in my you know in my scope as a legislator representing my constituents, I think a private right of action is probably a good idea. But in the context of what I could get passed out of the Arizona state legislature, it's not going to work. Fair enough. Avoided that conflict there. We have a lot of tech companies here. Sometimes they call Phoenix the Silicon Valley of the sun. Right. So in specifically looking at your bill, there are a lot of things in it that I really did like. One is that you have a definition of sensitive data. Mm-hmm. 
And so personal data that reveals a natural person's racial or ethnic origins, religious beliefs, mental, physical, behavioral, or psychological health conditions or diagnoses, or sex life or sexual orientation, genetic or biometric data that is processed to uniquely identify a natural person, the precise geolocation information of a device associated with a natural person, and the personal data of a known child. And so we see a lot of privacy bills that come across that don't include a concept of sensitive data. So I think I know what your answer is going to be here, but why did you want to include a definition of sensitive data? Well, look, historically, and especially, you know, when you take in context the the Hague and what the world has seen since the early 1900s, as far as that type of personal data being used in really horrific ways. I think it's important to bring that concept forward and protect all of our citizens, regardless of race, gender, orientation, and then move forward through biometric data. There's been, interestingly, in 2019, my first legislative session, there was a bill that came through the House of Representatives that purported to allow hospitals to collect and use genetic information for the purposes of diagnosis and treatment of whatever they were doing at the moment in the hospital. But there was a little provision, it was only a handful of sentences that exempted genetic information companies like 23andMe, Ancestry, those kind of things, exempted them and basically said that they could use or sell your your genetic information without asking you. And and I caught it at the last minute. I mean, you talk about things moving fast. We were on the floor. Right. We were voting for it. They had enough votes on the board to make that bill go through. And I caught it and I explained what the definition did. And so we we voted it down and fixed it. But yeah, genetic information is something I think is incredibly important and it will be in the future. So I wanted to include that in this bill under the sensitive data uh, definition. Absolutely. I love paying attention to the sensitive data spot, especially when that's one of the biggest controversies we're going to see among laws globally is the definition of sensitive data. I mean, there is the general that is bubbling to the top, which is most of what you included there. But on Paul's side, disappointed that it doesn't include political opinions and beliefs. Well, yes and no. (laughs) I mean, from the European perspective, I perfectly understand why it would be included. But looking at the way the US functions and all your public registers, I would be surprised actually if political opinion would be considered as sensitive with all the public lists that you have where you can just look up if somebody is an independent or not. It is. We had a whole episode on on that about the political differences between Europe and the U.S. and how here you can buy a list of how people are voted or how they're registered, their donations, different things like that. So it's fascinating. So in looking at this, I also love the idea. And by the way, anyone that wants to go look this up, the most recent version in 2021 is House Bill 2865. So House Bill 2865, but it also takes on the terms controllers and processors. And what was your thinking with that one? Well, um, that is, uh, I mean, that's borrowing straight from GDPR, right? That's that's bringing over the idea of not only assigning responsibilities, but liabilities to the folks that either control or process data and the ways that they do it. Again, part of it is trying to educate the U.S. and Arizonans on what those functions are and what those those types of businesses are. But bringing in some alignment with GDPR in thinking and maybe hoping that uh, a broader U.S. law or state U.S. state laws would also include that so that we have good good conformity across the globe. 
I really like the idea that you are inspired by GDPR, but this might not be the part that you want to include from the GDPR. Actually, the chair of the European Data Protection Board during a hearing before the US Senate mentioned that this probably would be the one section of GDPR that she wouldn't want to export to anywhere in the world because of all the complexities it brings. We are seriously struggling with the two concepts right now because back in the day when the concept of controller and processor were first imagined in the Council of Europe Convention 108 on the automated processing of personal data, you could still have a physical controller, somebody who had actually had a file in hand. But right now, that is no longer the case. So the roles have become so mixed yeah. up that it is very hard to, to distinguish the two. So I'm not even sure that Europe would maintain that distinction were we to revise the GDPR, which, God forbid, we don't do anything <laughs> soon. I agree with you. Let's not do it anytime soon. But you're right. It does get very complex in looking at it if a processor is defined as... Uh, or a controller, I guess that would be the key part as the person or the entity that defines how the data is processed. And when you look at how many processors are hired because of their expertise in how to process data, you really do start blurring the lines as to who's controlling and who's processing because, you know, you, you hire them for their expertise and what they have to do. So you're right. That part has gotten a little muddy. I will agree. So you would you would be surprised how many times Kay and I have the discussion about who is a controller and who is a processor for our internal data flows. It's not like I like to poke the bear or anything, right? <laughs> so, so yeah, and to give you some history on that, I run our company's internal privacy program as well. And so being with TrustArc, a global privacy compliance company, the legal team, the privacy intelligence team is the business owner driving our product as well, laws. What part or are there parts that you would have liked to have included in here, but you didn't because you knew, one, you couldn't make it too complex. As you said, yours was only 11 pages. You couldn't make it too complex or you thought it might be too controversial. Are there pieces that you really agonized over put it in or take it out? Oh, yeah. Well, I probably oh, this whole damn thing, I probably agonized over most of the words in it. You know, as you're... <laughs> Unlike California, right? And, and I like getting into those those deep, nuanced conversations, you know, about controllers and how things work, or or even a single word that can really change the the impact or the the context of what you're or a comma. Yeah. Um. So it took me. I probably. I, I think I worked a full year to get to the first draft before I sent it out to folks for review and for comment, and then and that was before the first bill dropped back in 2019, and it's been revised several times since. So yeah, I agonize over a lot of it. The one thing that I, I am still a little bit nervous about is working with the Arizona Attorney General because... That was going to be my next question. Yeah. As you see in California, they've had to spin up a lot of compliance, a lot of enforcement, a lot of internal processes. And I know that this bill would give the Attorney General a bunch of work to do. So there has to be budgeting that goes into that so they can do their work. So that's that's probably the next big thing is sitting down with that particular office and agency and working through how they're going to enforce a bill. And interestingly enough, in 2019, there was a bill dropped in Arizona that had to do with biometrics. And it was something that the attorney general said that he wanted. The bill died in 2019. I reintroduced it in 2020. And then the attorney general didn't back it up. He just let the bill die. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. Oh, politics. What can you say? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, it'll be an interesting road to get this more refined and, and get some conclusion based on what we have and, and kind of massage out the better phrasings. And what is your opinion or thoughts or fears on it being overridden by federal law? I'm okay with that. As long as we have something, we got to start taking steps. My job, when I wear my hat of a legislator, I'm to protect the constituents and advance laws that are in their best interest. Getting something on the books that we can talk about, a point that we can move from is my goal. And right now, all that Arizona has really is a, a breach notification law yeah. that contains a provision that says if the company that was breached decide they don't want to release the information about the breach or notify folks, they don't have to. So we're, we're pretty much stuck with just about nothing. So I, I just want to get something on the books. Let's start moving somewhere. So you have a breach notification obligation unless you don't want to. Yeah. Wow. Quite literally. Yeah. I, I flagged that, I think, six months ago, and I I tagged some of my colleagues, and I said, hey, do a sanity check. Am I reading this right? Like, can the company that gets breached just decide not to notify folks? And sure enough, that's what it is. <laughs> uh, gotta love it. But that is one of the examples that, you know, everyone says, well, if too many states pass laws, then of course the federal is going to have to. But you can also look at data breach notification laws. There's been 50 or more laws on the books for years now. I think the, the last state passed it like two, three years ago. And so you have those. They conflict in some areas, not a lot. But that does show that there can be laws on the books that conflict with each other related to data that the federal has not felt the need to have to pass a federal law to preempt. That is true. No, that's a really good point. And, you know, when you have things like, especially with HIPAA laws or consumer protection or, you know, the FTC and Section 5, there's there's a lot of layers to it. And I, so I think there's a lot of room to insert new laws that can work perfectly well. Businesses are really good at adapting. I think everybody will be fine. But we have to get something on the books in order to, to bring awareness and start the conversation. Agreed. So which of the two see you happening sooner, the federal privacy bill or the Arizona privacy bill? Oh, man. So right now, the feds, they can't even get out of their own way. I don't know what they're going to pass. They. <laughs> it's interesting. Looking at U.S. Congress, I, I was tracking 2017, 18, 19, tracking the privacy laws, proposed laws that were either introduced or were moving. And I just, I think at some point I just stopped. There were too many of them that were just dying. I'm I'm assuming that I'll see a news headline when, when something gets a substantial push to where it's about to pass, that type of thing. I need to go back and start uh, looking at that more closely. But yeah, I, I don't know the, the complexion of Congress right now enough to know whether they can get something through. Yeah, every year there's one or two that, that seem promising, that get backing from significant parties, and then it still goes nowhere. So it's interesting. I wanted to bring back up the opinion here in Arizona that was surprising was State v. Mixton, and it had to do with the Fourth Amendment and whether or not there needed to be a subpoena in order to get someone's IP address. And they had not gotten a subpoena to get the IP address. And this led to someone who had a lot of child pornography and was involved with that. And so it was just interesting, however, that given that Arizona has a heightened sensitivity to privacy, specifically done when it became a state, that it should have more deference and it didn't. And I think that was very surprising to many of us in the privacy field. 
So I just wanted to bring that back up. So you're going to bring this back up next year. What do you plan to change? I mean, it doesn't look like you felt you faced significant opposition to this. Or did you? Well, yeah, actually I did. So the in 2020, when I ran the bill, when we had it go through some committee hearings, there was pretty significant opposition on both the the business sector side and from the privacy advocates, the hardcore privacy advocates. So some folks saying that the, the bill is restrictive on businesses, that they'll lose money, that it's going to be overly burdensome. And then on the other side, folks saying that it doesn't go far enough, that they want to oppose it and kill it because it doesn't do enough for consumers. So there's a, an interesting balancing act. And you, you saw this in Washington state when they were working through their bills over the last few years. And I had some conversations with the senator that was pushing that bill and some of the legislators in California that were working their bills. So there will be there will be opposition. But the nice thing is that there's a lot of room to move on a data privacy bill based on the needs of the state, both the, the citizens and the businesses. And these when I when I drop a bill, I don't expect it to be in final form. I expect it to be modified and changed to be the best product. I'm completely okay with changing things so long as it doesn't make it in a way that it's completely ineffective. You know, we have, we still have to get something on the books. So I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to that process. And do you have a Senate crime that is willing to co-sponsor a dual house bill? You know, I think I do because there was a Senate bill. I think that was dropped by Senator Boyer and this might've been last year that touched on data privacy. Once we get out of the, the current Arizona legislative shenanigans, I will sit down with him and start talking through what uh, maybe a joint bill would look like and, and see if we can run them in parallel because that would shorten the time and make life a whole lot easier. Beautiful. So would this be a divisive issue across the aisle or is it more people from rural areas versus city areas or Interestingly, awareness is probably the, the biggest challenge that we're going to have. But a lot of folks on both sides of the aisle really are taking notice of big data and the data companies that are skimming and collecting and compiling data on this. So there's, there's interesting support in, in places that I would not have guessed. But education is going to be the biggest challenge that we have, just getting folks up to speed. I literally had one of my colleagues across the aisle a few weeks ago. On the floor of the Arizona House, we were, I forget what the discussion was about, but she said, you know, my cell phone is probably tracking me and there's really not much you can do about it. And so I'm watching this and I'm like, come on now. <laughs> I know I've said a lot of things on the House floor about this. We can fix it. But the, the resignation that I think comes from, you know, older generations when you used to drive in the, your old old 70s car and listen to FM radio, it was a, a single line broadcast, right? The, the broadcast came out from the radio station, came to you. It was free to you. All you had to have was your radio to pick it up. And I think that mentality still is in play in that someone downloads an app and they think, well, the, it must be free, you know, just like old FM radio. I'm just using the app. And they don't realize there's, there's two-way data streams going in and out and that the app is not free. That they're the product. Right. Yeah. I like that comparison. Yeah. The, the free app is not free. You're paying for it with your information. And so we just got to get a handle on that. So that, like I said, that'll be my, my educational job through the summer. Would a big scandal help? Last week, we, <laughs> last week we had a conversation with a, a cybersecurity specialist, and he has just written a book to give tips to CEOs of small-sized companies and mid-sized companies on how to deal with cybersecurity. And just when the book hits the shelves, the Colonial Pipeline 
issue appeared in the news. So friends were asking him, did you cause this? Which he didn't, for clarity, but it certainly helped with the book promotion. Or at least not on the record. (laughs) (laughs) With With something happening with Arizonians' personal data help to advance such a bill? Yeah, it certainly would. I mean, unfortunately, it would. But we go back to that same idea that Arizonans probably won't know that their data was, if it's an Arizona company, then the companies don't have to notify Arizonans. And when you get something like Equifax, when that breach happened, uh, a lot of Arizonans started looking around and saying, well, when did Equifax start collecting and holding my information and and, using and processing and selling it? And why weren't they more diligent about the, the processes they had? But really what it came down to is if you're going to jump on the lawsuit or maybe get a you know free credit protection, it doesn't rise to the level of getting their attention enough that they take action on it, that they had, the citizen you know wants to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And I never picked up on that in Arizona's breach, so you bet your bottom dollar I'm going to be looking at that because I was unaware that that existed, so I'll be reading every word of that. Yeah, I'd be happy to discuss privacy law with you. We face the issue every day of educating people on privacy. One of the reasons we launched the podcast in a very conversational format to talk about these type issues outside the pure technicalities of privacy or data protection or law or anything. And been been a little successful so far. People do actually... I would say so. Uh, yeah, people people do like to listen and learn a little bit. And of course, you know, I post things on social media all the time, hoping to educate the masses, but the masses are just too busy. They don't have the, the impetus, the attention span, the interest to go and research how laws apply to them, and especially privacy laws. I loved your your comparison there of that to the FM radio. That's... That's a really good comparison. And I know people say that this current generation is probably not privacy savvy because of the activities they do. But I would say that in my opinion, they're a little bit more privacy savvy. They know what they're giving up and they're okay with it. Yeah. Because that's not what's important to them. Right. Yeah. So that's completely fine with me. If you know what you're giving up and you know what they're compiling on you and you want to send it out, then that's fine with me. I just, you know, notice and consent coming back to that that guiding star. Absolutely. And we all know there's no real useful, user-friendly, absolute way to give notice other than giving notice, which isn't really effective, but it's better than nothing. But what what other option do you have to notify people other than to notify people? Just don't always use text. That is my best recommendation there. Oh my gosh, right. Use videos, use cartoons, be creative. Yeah, try to be creative with it. I tell you what, in a, in a short statement, something that if it could be done would really get folks' attention and it would be a, a quick statement of the monetization of their information. Say, you, user, are worth X amount of cents or dollars to us. And that'll get people's attention yeah. real quick, because then then you identify... Is that all? Well, uh, it would work for me. <laughs> <laughs> Just 50 cents? Exactly. Okay. So, when we asked you to come on the show, was there anything in particular you wanted to make sure that you shared with our listeners? No, I'm just happy to be here, and I'm excited to be talking about privacy. We can get more information out and kind of broaden the scope of discussions. So I'm just happy that folks are paying attention that we get another bite at the apple coming up soon to drop another bill and continue the discussion. I know that the time horizon on legislation is quite long. And while I'm in the legislature, I'll do what I can to advance it. And I'm always open to to have discussions about it, how it affects not only the constituents, 
but also businesses because there are a myriad types of businesses that are impacted by data privacy laws in a bunch of different ways. And, and I love learning. I love, you know, knowing <laughs> what goes into their, their daily routine. So yeah, reach out to me. Oh, absolutely. They are just as important to Arizona as the people are. Mm-hmm. I mean, frankly. Absolutely. Right. So need it. Thank you so much for coming on. Paul, anything last from you? Yeah, we look, we look forward to cheer you on during the next legislative session and, and make sure this bill passes the House and the Senate and the governor and gets to the statute. So thank you very much for being with us this week. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like our series, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us and rate and review our episodes in your favorite podcast app or on your favorite podcast platform. Yes, that's a thing too we recently discovered. Should you have any questions or suggestions, and especially if you would like to be a guest, please reach out to us via seriousprivacy at trustark.com or via Twitter at, at @podcastprivacy. You'll find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Europoli. Until next week, goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because they're... Deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions. <laughs>